long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation was declared first by the Lord, and God has put everything in subjection under his feet, and crowned him with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the champion of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he was made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation. For the sins of the people. Since he has suffered when tempted, he can also help those who are being tempted. Therefore, consider Jesus, who was completely faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as those in the rebellion did. They were unable to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. So while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Good news came to them just as it has to us, but the message they heard did not benefit them because... They were not united by faith with those who listened. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize With our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Let us move beyond the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, which we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation So, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit 
the eternal promises. Concerning these promises, when God desired to show even more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with another oath, so that by these two unchangeable things, and it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to him for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Consider this. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood and under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And he holds his priesthood continually, permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall all know me. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. So, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, namely His death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified. And therefore, there is no longer any offering for sins. So, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another how to stir up love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. How terrible must that punishment be? That is deserved by those who have trampled underfoot 
the Son of God, who have profaned the blood of the covenant and outraged the Spirit of grace. But as for you, remember the former days when you've joyfully persevered. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith the people of old old received their commendation. It was by faith for Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, yet all of them died in faith, not having received the things promised. But as strangers and exiles on the earth, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so it was even with Moses and so many more, and time would fail me to mention them all, men and women of whom the world was not worthy. But understand this, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a host of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the champion and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline? Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak Knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You have not come to the gloom and tempest and terrifying sight of Mount Sinai. Rather, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festial gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word even than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if... Those before did not escape when they refused him who warned from the earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. But let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We often need to find our place. There are many situations Examples of our lives where you wake up, maybe it's from an alarm and you're in a different city or town and you don't immediately remember what it took to get you there. You wake up disoriented and you don't know what got you there. It takes a few moments to remember, oh yeah, I'm on vacation or I'm on a work trip. As you get older, you have more of those experiences, sometimes in your own home. Wait, where am I? What's happening? And it's the same with the Bible, When we come to a place, it is very easy to forget how we got there and why it is that the author is saying what he's saying. If we're not careful, Hebrews 11 can be the exact same thing. Why is he saying it? We need to find our place. And we just did for about 14 minutes, that's all that was, of a summary of the entire book of Hebrews. I considered we could have just read the whole thing. That would have taken about an hour. But I believe that was a faithful, theologically structured summary of the entire book. And hopefully in that structure, as you just listened, as the first century hearers would have just sat and heard it without anything in their laps, and let the words and the encouragements and the exhortations and the theology just wash over you, Hopefully you understand now why Hebrews 11 exists. So now, with that in mind, hoping that you see the whole forest, let's read Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This first phrase, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What is the author's agenda? Why is he saying this? Much depends on where we put the emphasis. As you read this, where do you put the emphasis? Let me just show you a few examples. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Or would you say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Or would you say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Do you see how emphasis changes the meaning? And what we just did in summarizing Hebrews was to attempt to answer that question. Where does the emphasis rest? Is the author trying to define faith exhaustively? I would say with the resounding, no, that is not what he is doing. This isn't a new subject. He's not picking up a new line of inquiry. As you read the Bible, you need to figure out and understand how it all works together. Why is he picking up this analysis of faith and looking back at all those who came before? He's not trying to define what faith is. And there's several reasons why that can't be the case. It is assumed that the audience has some understanding of what faith is because he mentions it all the way back in chapter 4 verse 2. For good news came to them, just came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. These are people who have trusted in Christ. They know what faith is. And secondly, the centrality of Christ is, if it were possible, overstated in Hebrews. Yet in this definition of faith, he doesn't mention Christ. Why? 
for the Christian, faith, hopefully I don't need to say this, faith is about Christ, okay? Christianity, if I state the obvious, is about Christ, okay? So we can't define faith apart from him. So why is he giving us these positive affirmations about faith without mentioning Jesus? That's an important question. Rather, the way to understand this passage and why he's saying these positive things is to show this, that it has always been by faith. Always. This is not a new way. This is not a new agenda. This is not a new plan on God's part. The people of God have always endured by faith. And the way he's showing us this, when we get to the bulk of Hebrews 11, not today, don't worry, he's recounting and he's offering a re-examination of Jewish history through the lens of faith. So he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's faith. For by it, meaning by faith, for by faith the people of old received their commendation. Do you see? That's, that's the point he's making. It's not by anything else. It was always by faith. It's always been this way. By it, by faith the people of old, all the people of old received their commendation. And it's not so much the hall of faith as it has been called. I would call it the faith expose. Okay, I probably won't catch on. Sounds easier to call it the hall of faith. But it's the faith expose. It's, it's that moment. It, many of you have, have watched films. I'm into film. And there's that moment in a movie where something happens. And it can be a very brief moment. And then everything you've seen up to that point in the movie begins to make sense. One of my favorite films, I hope this isn't irreverent to mention it, but it's The Incredibles, directed by Brad Bird, the Pixar film. It was released uh, more than a decade ago, so hopefully I'm not spoiling anything, but when Syndrome reveals that he is Brody, if you remember, by saying, I'm your biggest fan, that's the moment where the entire plot of the movie becomes clear. That is what the author is doing here. For by faith the people of old endured. He's offering us a way to look back at the Old Testament and see it through Christian lens. And here it makes sense to ask a question. Faith versus what? If if the author has it as the intention to say it was by faith. It was by faith that they persevered. It was by faith that they inherited the promises. It was by faith that they received their commendation. Then faith versus what? You don't have to have a very deep understanding of Hebrews or the New Testament or the Old Testament to know the alternatives that tempted the first century believers. Was it by law? That the people of old received their commendation? Was it by heritage, who your mommy and daddy are? Was it through obedience even? Or was it through religious rigor? That's what the Pharisees thought. There was law, and law was important, but there was law. And before there was law, there was faith. There was heritage. It did matter who your mom and dad were if you were in the people of Israel. And that was important. But all of those were secondary or symptoms of something deeper that was supposed to make the people of God who they were. And that was faith. And it was always faith. There are examples in the Old Testament where God himself rejects obedience because it is not from faith. There's no other way to make sense of those passages. God says to the people of Israel, I'm sick of you offering your sacrifices. I'm sick of you keeping your feasts. Yeah, it's obedience, but it's not from faith. 
We can look at the Old Testament and all we can see is law, law, law. That's not what it's there for. It is to show us how we are to love God. The centerpiece of understanding our relationship is actually the Shema. If you think about it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. How are we to show that we love him? Through obedience, to be sure. But if you don't have love, if you do not believe that he is the one who has led you by the hand out of the land of Egypt, if you don't have faith and love in God, then all of that obedience is worthless. And it will damn you. But how is he to show this? And this is why this passage exists. How is he to demonstrate that all the people of old, before Christ came, had faith? That's an important question. Because Jesus hadn't come yet. So for us, for us Christians, faith means trust, holistic trust in Jesus, the person, Jesus Christ. So how is it that, going all the way back to Abel, they had faith? And this is why the second phrase here exist assurance of things hoped for conviction of things not seen not in general things hoped some people go to this passage and they say well i have faith because i i just have i believe it's going to happen i i have hope that i'm going to get a yacht one day in my own personal island i have faith no you don't That is wishful thinking and insanity in some cases. That Believing that just because you believe it intensely, it will come into being, that's idolatry at best, demonic at worst. No, what he's saying here is the things hoped for, if you were listening as I was giving us the summary of Hebrews, he's speaking of the promises. 17 times in Hebrews, he mentions promises. And then five times he mentions the oath. You combine those, that's more than twice of the second place book in the New Testament. The promises are what these people are hoping in. They are convinced that what God has promised, what yet cannot be seen, is going to happen because they trust in God. They believe in him that even though they died in faith, not receiving what was promised, they persevered through faith and held fast through faith faith because they believed in God. Is that us? Even though we have seen Christ, we see him manifested in his word, there are yet the best promises still waiting for you. That is the basis of his encouragement here. Be like them. Because you understand that this community, we'll talk about this in a little bit, was under a lot of persecution. So how is it that we, we, we say we've received Christ, we've been given this kingdom that, with foundations that can't be shaken, so how are we to persevere through suffering? We've got to hold fast to the hope that these promises are yet to come. All of them and the best ones will come in the hereafter. Yes, there are benefits now. There are blessings now. The new life begins now. The new birth is a miracle and it is, there's nothing in comparison to it with anything in all existence. But Paul very blatantly says, if this is it, it's not worth it. The author himself was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He says, we heard from those who saw. So he's in the same boat as us. We weren't there. We didn't get to see Jesus, to have faith in him specifically. But we trust in God's word that his promises are true. And we believe that he will follow through and deliver on his promises when the end comes. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. His purpose for saying this, I believe, is to show just how foundational faith is for the life of anyone. 
New Testament, Old Testament, future, doesn't matter how long the Lord tarries, faith is the centerpiece. Until faith is made into sight, your Christian life is, as Paul says, from faith for faith. It begins with faith, it's rooted in faith, and it's unto more faith. It's always going to be faith until faith becomes sight. Here's an example of how central faith has to be for us, just in your basic assumptions. Scientific evidence can only go so far. I believe if you look at the data, it makes the case for at least theism. But theism is not worship of Yahweh. Okay? You can't look in creation and get to Trinity. You can't look at creation and get to Jesus, the wisdom and power of God. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's that's Christian faith. That's Christian understanding of the world. It's not just, yeah, there's got to be a creator. It's that God, Yahweh, the I am, spoke it into being for his glory. It's very different. And it only is through faith. It is not a blind leap. So be careful in what you say in your discussions with people and how we present Christianity to them. It is not just on the basis of scientific data. It is through faith. It must be through faith. It it is going to be salvific. In their case, it must be through faith. Or otherwise, they are broken from the heritage of all those who came before and they're not saved. And we would pray so much more if we understood this. You can't convince people into being Christians. You can't use scientific argument, logical argument, to to twist the arms of unbelievers into accepting our syllogisms. It's through faith. Things not seen, not leaving your brain behind. It is on the basis of God's word. He has spoken. He's declared objectively who he is. But to believe that requires faith. It's objective, but it requires faith to believe. And more than that, it's not just believing in propositions about God that are true. The devil does that. He has better theology than most of us. But he hates God. He does not love him. And he does not trust in him. Faith for the author of Hebrews and for Christians means holistic trust in a person. Not in a system, not in a belief set, but a person. Jesus Christ himself. So just a few observations for this understanding of Hebrews 11, specifically 1 through 3 and how it applies to our lives The first is, the people that he's writing to are in a precarious situation. They're being persecuted. And they're wondering, why should we adhere to Christ? Things are really, really, really bad. And these are people who have already had all their stuff plundered and joyfully accepted that for the sake of the name of Jesus. So it's getting so much worse that even people who are that mature are wondering, should we really hold fast to Christ at this point? Some people have called Hebrews an evangelistic stump speech to unconverted Jews. There's no way that that can be the case. He is speaking to people who believe in Jesus. And he has a deep, heartfelt, pastoral concern and appeal to them to hold fast to Christ. Don't give up, don't throw away your confidence. He has concern for them. Not unlike the care and concern I have for you and for myself, we must hold fast. As we see in Hebrews 2, verses 2 through 3, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? They're in a precarious situation. They're teetering. They're not sure if they're going to continue on with zealous, holistic, joyful commitment to Christ. 
What about you? Is your life American dream plus Jesus? Or is it Christ through all and in all? Second observation is that we have a great salvation because we have a great Savior. The salvation that Jesus has accomplished is not only greater than the Old Covenant, because He is the one who did it, but because all of the shadows of the Old point to Christ and prepare the way for Christ, who is greater than Moses. Or better, the one who Moses pointed to and prophesied about and showed the need for has come in Christ. Christ is the greater high priest. Christ is the true tabernacle. He is the true ark. He is the true lamb. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. So if that's the case, these are people who understood these things. At a certain point, you would have looked at them and said they're mature believers. So why is it that they are teetering? He's not telling them new things. He's reminding them in most of these cases. These are people that we would have looked up to. And I think here, especially because of Hebrews 11, it gives us some of the answer. They were bogged down, in essence, by this issue. What is the legacy of salvation? To whom do the promises belong? Who is going to inherit? And is it worth suffering for something that's auxiliary? Or that could be set aside or made secret? If we can just be Christians in isolation and not just not let a lot of people know, or if, or if Jesus is just kind of like one of the prophets and we can celebrate all the other prophets publicly so that we don't receive persecution from the Jewish community, if we can, if we can uh, fall under the protections that existed in Rome for Jews, why, why don't we just do that? Why do we have to make the issue front and center about Christ, Jesus of Nazareth? This is no small matter. To whom belong the promises? Who inherits? The real legacy of faith, if it belongs to the religious elite and those who kept the law of Moses, then all this suffering for Jesus would be in vain. Do you understand that? If the promises are just for those who kept the law, then all the suffering for Jesus and for his name is in vain. And God is the one who does not change. So if this is a new way, if this is altogether new, then there's good reason to doubt if this is really from God. Because God doesn't change. So who is in the real stream of redemptive history? Who inherits the promises? We might ask, which promises is he talking about? And if you just look through Hebrews with the summary I gave you, he's talking about all of them. The promises to Abraham, the promises to Moses, the promises to the people. He wraps them all up. Who inherits these? Is it those who go and offer sacrifices? Should, should we Christians go back to the temple and offer sacrifices? I mean, the commands are there in the law. Is it the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes? They seem to be really rigorous in their holiness. Is it the Jewish people, the ethnic Jews, the chosen people of God? They seem to be doing this for the, it this way, this other way, this not Jesus way for a long time. Maybe that's the way. And the author answers with a resounding no. His answer is, it has always been by faith. It is those who have faith who receive the promises. And that is why Hebrews 11 exists. That is why he gives us these examples of these men and women to show, to prove. It is not through Torah. It is not through religious rigor 
At its foundation, yes, they kept the law. Yes, they were religiously rigorous. They were devout. But beneath that was trust in God because they knew they had not inherited the promises. And that's the point that he's making to them. You say you admire these people? Call yourself, we are Abraham's children. And you, you revere Moses. You're tempted to maybe even go back that way. It's in the scriptures. You revere these people. Then follow their example. Follow the example of those who have faith. Don't think that they are the point or the main attraction. Such a key passage is chapter 6, 11 through 12. And we desire that each of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is how they inherited the promises. It was through faith and patience. Faith in the Lord and patience in His answering. So the author is taking up the whole heritage of faith, reaching back to the prophets, back to David, back to Moses, back to Abraham, back to Noah, back to Enoch, and even back to Abel, and subjecting all of it to Christ. So he is saying it is not altogether new. This is not a new way. We've received more information, but this is not a new way to be saved or to inherit It's always been through faith. It's preparatory, pointing towards the faith in Christ. And and even our faith is preparatory for the age to come. Furthermore, he goes so far as to say that they knew that. If you read Hebrews 11 closely, you see that the author is saying they knew they had not received what was promised in full. They knew they they weren't going to. They knew that something else was coming and God had prepared something better for them and for us in Christ. So why does all this matter? Because the day is coming. And all things have been subjected under Christ's feet. There's a refreshing way to think about the gospel. Christ the Lord speaks for God and acts for God. He dies as the only sacrifice and by his resurrection he is enthroned in heaven as the only high priest and is bringing many sons to glory with him to offer sacrifices of praise to God by the Spirit forever. That is a rich, deep, biblical understanding of this this reaching backwards and forwards into all eternity of what this gospel really is. And only under this grand, glorious, otherworldly view of the gospel does telling someone about sin make any sense at all. And only then does it land as heavily as it ought to. Sin is not just breaking rules. You're rejecting that one who is enthroned in heaven. Only under this grand and glorious and otherworldly truth does the problem of human unbelief appear in its stark and deadly terms as it ought to. You would reject that one? You would would refuse Him who is speaking? And only under this grand and glorious and otherworldly truth will the gospel, the message of God's offer of salvation, take on its most meaningful, heavy, and life-giving power. Because the only alternative, the consequence of rejecting such a one, is to have him as your enemy forever. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking It is not that you haven't already made yourself his enemy through sin, but in his death, he offers you peace with God. And if you shrink back, if you reject that offer, 
that offer of peace made possible by His blood. If you will not draw near to God through Him, if you will not cast yourself upon Him, if, if, if you will go on sinning deliberately, holding Christ up to contempt, if you willfully fall away, then the promises are not yours. And all that remains is fearful expectation of fiery judgment. So just a few points of application for this. This section, Hebrews 11, and really the whole book of Hebrews, helps you put your whole Bible together. The Bible is a big and often complex and seemingly confusing book. But this passage specifically helps us put it all together and understand what God has been up to the entire time. And it's all pointing to Christ, unfolding in Him and even drawing us further. You really need to read your Old Testament and all of those stories in light of what the author says here. Because if this is true, then that means that it was through faith, not through law, that they persevered. And we'll talk about that next week. This is an important question. Faith in Christ and faith not law. What does that mean? And what are the implications of that? How how does a Christian live a holy life if it is rooted in faith and not command? We'll talk about that next week. It's very important. But furthermore, another point of application is that you really do need to count the cost. There will come a time in your life where following Jesus, obeying Him, will mean some sort of loss for you. Loss of job, loss of friends, loss of money, loss of reputation, loss of pleasure, loss of self. Indeed, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In these instances... It is the legacy of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Jesus himself who went outside the camp to bear reproach that we should follow. Will that be your legacy? Will you know that God has promised you a city with foundations that can't be shaken and there is your hope? Or will your legacy be like that of Esau who sold his birthright for just one meal? You might already be there. You might be teetering like the people in Hebrews. What are you willing to sell your inheritance away for? What are you willing to give up your faith, your holistic trust in a person, Jesus Christ, for? The fleeting pleasures of this world? Comfort, convenience, riches? Further, This is the third point of application. We really need to define faith biblically. It's not necessarily a list of beliefs. Doctrine is important. It is wholesale trust in Jesus Christ himself, the person, and not just your conception of him, the real resurrected Christ presented to the eyes of your heart and you trusting in him with everything. That's faith. Not just saying Jesus is from God. The demons believe and shudder. Does he have your heart? Are you, are you like the first hearers of the preaching of spirit-empowered preaching at the day of Pentecost? Brothers, what should we do? For your whole life, everything's on the table for the sake of Christ. Is he that treasure hidden in the field for you? Is he that pearl of great price that you, for the sake of which you'll sell everything to gain? Number four, do not despise your brother or sister. This may seem like an odd application from a discussion about faith, but if it is really by faith, if the heirs of the promises are those who persevere through faith, then it is not those who are super mature or talented. 
There are people who are super mature and talented who have faith, but if you despise your brother or sister because they lack maturity or talents or ability or gifting, you are despising the very thing that unites them to all of these promises. It levels the playing field. It's either faith or it's nothing. We are debtors to Christ. If it is through faith, then we have no grounds for boasting or thinking ourselves any better than our brother, or weak brother or sister. Even the one who is weak in faith, we're to joyfully embrace them. Number five, remember that we're not yet home. Again, if this is it, it's a really dumb hobby. And you haven't come to understand the promise that is yours in Christ if that seems like an odd statement to you. We're not home. Here we have no lasting city. It's not the United States. It's not the state of Idaho. It's not your personal kingdom in your house. It is the kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem. There is your inheritance. We're not home. Only that otherworldly hope will carry you through and give you the energy and strength you need to persevere. Because this isn't enough, if I'm being honest. This isn't enough to carry us through. What we have, even the people who are in the best situations for Christianity, it's not enough. It doesn't give you enough. Only Christ, seated in the heavenly places behind the inner curtain, Reigning with God, drawing you in even to that inner place. That's enough. That is what we look forward to and hope in. We're not yet home. So eagerly wait for him. When he returns, he will come to not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then lastly... Be saved today. I don't know where you are in your heart. If you have called yourself a Christian your entire life, but you have never had this holistic, joyful trust in the person Jesus Christ himself, let today be the day of salvation. Through the preaching of the gospel, he himself has been lifted up and magnified to the eyes of your heart. So believe in him. Trust in him. Today can be and I will say must be the day of salvation for you. Trust Him. I know that might sound really vague. But when you take Him at His word, then your whole life belongs to Him. And the entire life of holiness and the kingdom of God and righteousness, holiness, all of that opens up to you. Take him at his word. Believe that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, you have given us such a great gospel and a new covenant by which we draw near. Help us rest in the better promises that are ours through faith. Please encourage us. The world is set against us and we have had enough of derision and opposition. Help us be encouraged by the fact that if we trust in you through the trial, we will receive the kingdom with foundations that cannot be shaken. In Jesus' name, amen.